I invite you, if you have a Bible with you, um, to go to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, and Luke chapter 2. And you're thinking, whoa, what's going on there? I bet you've never linked predestination before with the Christmas story. Well, here's going to be your chance this morning. Um, We have a, a huge opportunity before us to see how God works in the lives of each of us to bring glory to himself. And we need to link it with some scriptures in order to set up this Christmas story this morning. I need to pray with you first before we do that. But before we pray, just a detail for you. Uh, With Christmas Eve coming up, we recognize that our parking lot will probably be really, really full. And so I want to encourage you, if you're coming for the Christmas Eve services, uh, Jeff was mentioning the time slots earlier. Um, would you consider if you typically come in separate cars or maybe family members split up that maybe you could carpool when you come for Christmas Eve? Uh, among the staff, we recognize there likely will be somewhere around 2,000 people here for the Christmas Eve services. And we know that because we had about 1,600 for the Easter services, and that was in the old building. And with this new facility and new people who have been added to the church, we just recognize the parking lot will be really crowded. If you want to go an extra step, we've made arrangements with the bowling alley just down the street um, that at city limits that you could park there if you wanted to and walk down the sidewalk to come here. And maybe especially if you're serving that day, that might be an option for you to consider. So think about that in advance or maybe think if maybe if you come in separate cars, coming in one car that day, that would be really helpful to us. Now, with that in mind, and with what we're about to look at in the Christmas story and how God works through circumstances, I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God would be the one who would teach us this morning, that his Holy Spirit would really speak through his word. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person who's made the effort to be here today and those who are watching online right now. I know that you have things that you have communicated through your written word But you communicate to us also through the power of your Holy Spirit who gives us insight into your word. So we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would give us an extra degree of insight. And not to see more than what you've caused to be there, but rather, Father, that we would understand what you've caused to be there. And that it would apply to our lives and we would specifically apply ourselves to the principles that we learned this morning. That it wouldn't just be information for the sake of information but rather that you would teach us through it so we would apply it and use it for the benefit, not only for our own lives, but for the people that we interact with. God, we ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I think we would all agree with the reality that God brings hard things into our life. God brings things that seem to cause monumental questions. He brings monumental challenges which trigger monumental questions. And sometimes the questions can be pretty intense. We have to ask ourselves in those moments what the real issue is. And I think you're going to find from Scripture this morning the real issue is how will I personally respond when God brings difficult challenges my way? Will I make room in my life for what might seem like a disruption when God interrupts what I had planned? So I'm going to be asking you this morning... And next week and Christmas Eve when we get together, is there space in your life for God to interrupt, even if it feels like a disruption? And I know some of you right now are wading through moments like that. Some of you have encountered some very hard things in the last few weeks, in the last few months. One thing is certain while you're walking through that, 
while you're in the midst of those planes of experience with God, those interruptions leave a mark on you. You'll never be the same going forward. Completely different because God shapes your life in the midst of those moments. What you're about to experience with me and what we're going to walk through together is meant for your encouragement. If you're walking through that, if you know somebody who's walking through that, or maybe you have in the past, I really want you to see how God speaks in the midst of that. When God brings monumental challenges, as I said, it, it causes monumental questions. It's done it in my life. I'm sure it's doing it in your life. Things like, what is going on? Why do I have to go through this? Why am I suffering? I thought God causes all things to work together for good, and this doesn't feel so good. Let me remind you of Romans 8, 28. I asked some of you to turn there if you had a Bible with you, but you can follow along on the screen. Look at Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But when we're in the midst of it, we're saying, what I'm going through right now doesn't feel so good. How can this be true? Does that only apply to other people and not to me? When Paul writes Romans 8, 28, he does intend, and God moved his heart to write this way, that he means all things, both the bitter things and the sweet things. Whatever it is that you're going through, it's not by accident. There's no accidents with God. It doesn't just happen to you. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, God's saying to you, I got you. In the midst of what you're going through, I've got you. I called you according to a purpose, and I can bring good out of this. Now, many of us, when we see purpose in the midst of Romans 8, 28, we think that that's just talking about salvation. Well, I would ask you this morning, does God only call you for salvation, or is there something more? Is there something more beyond your salvation? And to understand that, you really need a biblical view to understand this in depth. And so there's these two distinct levels of understanding when we come to this position. God, first of all, let's start here at the most basic level. The most base that applies to all of human, humanity on earth. At its most basic level, God formed us. He uniquely built us. You've been built by your creator. You have unique specifications and he has put unique purposes within your life. But the Bible says before he formed you, he already knew you. Let me put this up on the screen for you. You see, Jeremiah wrote this, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, the way the Bible uses the word know, every time it uses it, it's used in conjunction with an intimate relationship. It's not just saying like, I know that person by name. It means I know everything about them. There's intimacy that's intended to be used here. So God says, I don't just know you. I know everything about you. So let's keep with this most basic level of understanding here. That you are here on planet Earth is because God wanted you here. There's no mistakes with God, right, church? God doesn't make any mistakes. So there's no mistake with any life that's here. Whether a person is a believer or not, God wants that person here because every life is precious to God. Every child's life, every adult's life, every life is precious to God. Now, we're still at the most basic level of understanding. I need to illustrate that with a sports analogy. Just bear with me for a minute. In the National Football League, there's what's known as the, the draft. 
in the NFL draft individual players who are really, really, really good, they're brought into what's known as the draft or where franchises can buy players. When they enter into the draft, they're available for purchase. In other words, their contract can be purchased by a team. The best of the best of the best are in the draft to the degree that they become the first round draft choice. To the degree that a team will have to ante up huge dollars to lay down a contract in order to get that particular player. According to the Bible, every human being is a first round draft choice with God. There's no second round picks with God at the most basic level. If you're here on planet earth, it's because God wants you here. He's the one who has formed you and placed you here. Now, at a deeper theological level, let's just go a little subterranean. At a deeper level, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're not only here because God wanted you here, you're chosen. You're not only uniquely built, not only a first round draft choice, but you're chosen if you're a believer in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? I hope you see it that way. That's precious truth to God. It's a precious truth to us. Now, when you're thinking Romans 8 and you're thinking Romans 9, you're probably beginning to think of predestination. And you should be because we're going to kind of dabble in it for just a moment. Romans 8.28 is linked with Romans 8.29. Now, as a believer, if you're a believer this morning, you can stand in the enormity of that promise that God causes all things to work together for good because of verse 29. This is predestination light, but just go with me to verse 29. It says this, for those, or in other words, because, for those whom he foreknew, because he foreknew you, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And these whom he predestined, he also called. You notice verse 30, look at it real closely. He called. Now, if someone calls you, it means he knows you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. If someone calls you, he knows you, and we're told he chose you, what are you chosen for? You're chosen to conform to the image of the king. You were predestined to look like Jesus, predestined to conform to the image of the king. Uh, Many people, when they read those two things, they get hung up on the predestined. They, they want to make sure they understand that, and they want to know more. Well, if you want to know more, you can go to our Roman series. We spent a lot of time in it. We were like in it for three years. You can go back and look at part 58 and 59 and 60. That'll really help you with it. But here's where it invariably leads to when they think of predestination. Wait, did I choose God, or did God choose me? Well, the answer to that is yes, right? Both would be true in this sense. You, at some point in your life, had to recognize that you were a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, where we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. You had to come to the place in your life where you accepted that you were condemned and destined for hell. You had to come to the place where you accepted that Jesus came to destroy sin and that his death on the cross would clearly buy you back. So yes, you play a role. You came to the place where you played a role because you confessed Jesus. But even that, we're told, is of God. We're told that the fact remains that the maker of everything willingly gave up everything so that he could be with us. 
He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. He allowed himself to be buried in the ground. And he was resurrected one day. And he's, one day he's coming again in glory so that we could be with him. Uh, maybe that's new news to you. Maybe you're new to church this morning. The scriptures say in, first John, in John 1, 12, that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. You can receive what I just said this morning, right now in your own seat. You can do that privately. You don't even have to talk to a pastor. You don't have to walk an aisle. You can just say, I believe that. I believe that Jesus came. I believe that he died for my sins. That makes you a believer. If that's new news to you, you could talk with me after the service if you want to. But in that sense, you become a believer that he died for your sins. And you receive that and say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. But those issues of predestination are not the most important parts of verse 29. Let me show you, and you might want to pull your notes out now if you haven't done that yet. Look with me on the screen also. The two most important parts of verse 29. Here they are. That God knows everything. He foreknew. That means he's omniscient. He knows everything. And here's the second one. That God has an objective, an objective for your life. If you're a believer this morning, he has an objective to conform you to the image of Jesus. That's the first Greek word in your notes this morning. It's sumorphos. And it's more than just standing next to someone to be like them. It, it actually means there's an adaption. There's a changing of the parts. You look at morphe. You're familiar with that word morph in the English language. There's an adjustment of the parts of your life. So I need to clarify what does conformed mean then? How does that actually flesh itself out? in my life. Remember, we're, we're inching towards the Christmas story here. We're going to be looking at Mary in just a moment. We need to understand these things. How am I conformed? Well, there's two aspects to this conforming. Number one, the very first one is what you're experiencing right now, a present conformity. You are in this life conforming to Jesus. It begins to happen now, conforming to the mind of Christ. Let me back this up with scripture. It says this in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Stop right there for just a second. What we're talking about there, church, is supernatural. You can't do that on your own. By our own strength, we are naturally selfish. We're not always looking out for the interest of others, yet scripture commands us to do that. How do we do that? We do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he goes on further in verse five to say, have this attitude, have this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now in this life right now, 2019, December of this year, that conforming to the mind of Christ, unfortunately, does not come all at once. We wish that it would. We would love to have just a download from heaven to make us just like Jesus here and now. But it's a lifetime process. It takes a long time. Paul says, I press on towards the goal. Now, that's the very first component of conformity. Here's the future conformity, though. This is number two. You see this in your notes also. Number two is matched with Philippians 3 also. Look at this. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, watch, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In other words, there's a future conformity. This shell, this physical body you have, it's going to change one day. You're going to get a new body. Who's up for that? 
All right? I'm up for that. Take a new body. But also the mind. We're told that when we see Jesus, we will be like him or we will see him as he is. So there's a future conformity. There's a present conformity. Both of those conformities ultimately culminate in being like Jesus fully one day. So there's a metamorphosis that's taking place in your life right now. It should be if you're a follower in Jesus. Scripture should be making more sense to you. You should be further along than you were a year ago at this time, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You should be looking more and more like Jesus, acting and talking more like Jesus. Now, that's enough. We could stop right there and go home today and say, well, that was a boatload of information. But where we're headed is about more than God's choosing. It's about more than predestination. It's about the reason for God's choosing. But we had to start with that in order to lay this basis. That's truth on the first level. Let me take you to the second level before we get into the Christmas story. Truth on a second level is this. God not only built you, God not only chose you for salvation, God chose you as an object of his glory. And this is a crucial truth you need to grasp, absolutely imperative before you can understand the Christmas story. The Bible is filled with examples of God choosing. God chose Noah to deliver the planet In other words, to preserve life. God chose Esther. Scripture says, for such a time as this. God chose David to lead a nation, but he had to live in a cave first. God chose Paul to stand before kings and governors and emperors. God chose Mary to give birth to the Messiah. What's consistent in every single case, and it's consistent in your life, is that God chose individuals in order to put himself on display. He's on display through a chosen life. Let me restate what we've heard so far. God chose, first of all, to place you here on planet Earth. That's your drawing air at this moment as a gift of God. So there's no one who's second rate. We're all made in the image of God. But because of God's great mercy, because of his great love, believers were chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world, Scripture says. So we understand that God calls us not just for salvation, but he calls us for a distinct purpose here on earth. If not, he could just take you home right now. He could snatch you away if there wasn't a purpose for you being here. There's a reason that you're here. And Romans 9 helps us with this truth. So you've been in Romans 8. Maybe you just flip a page over and you go to Romans 9. You can watch it on screen as well. But here's where it gets a little more fleshy because it uses a real person. God's going to use Pharaoh as an example. Watch this, Romans 9, 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. Quick history. Pharaoh is elevated to the position of king of Egypt. He's not elevated for his own good. He's elevated because God wanted him elevated. He's king over the most powerful nation the earth knew at that time. Why? That God might display in him the evidence of his power. Uh, We're talking about Pharaoh Amenhotep II. He's the one who's ruling over Egypt at that time, and he has Israel 
under his boot. They're in slavery to him. God brought him to that position of power. So Pharaoh's place in history is that he's remembered as the one whom God had to bring to his knees. So even when, from the viewpoint of human understanding, it looks like things are spiraling out of control, God says, I got this. I can cause all things to work together for good. I'm in the midst of these things. So undeniably, God brings Pharaoh onto the stage of history, and he tells us why in verse 16. For this purpose I raised you up, to show my power, so that my name will be proclaimed. What's the purpose in that? So that God's name might be proclaimed. What emerged was not Pharaoh's purposes, but God's purposes. God making something an object of his glory. Romans 9 finishes this way, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So with Paul and with everyone else in history, we recognize there are things that happen to us that are beyond our grasp. There are monumental challenges that God brings into our life to which we want to say, why is this happening? Why is this going on this way? And it triggers monumental questions. And Paul answers in verse 20, at least for a believer this is true, his answer is not an answer, it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke to any person who would put God to the test and challenge God and make God answerable to humans. And he says, does the potter not have authority over the clay? Far more so with God. It's God who determines whether or not a person will be a Pharaoh or will be a Moses. It's God who determines the genetics. It's God who determines who will be the parents. We don't even get to decide the day of our birth. God determines those things. So Paul is challenging, saying, that's an illegitimate question. Just let it go. But here's a legitimate question for you. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand before glory, for glory, even us whom he also called. Now we've come full circle. We're told that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Every single human on earth. That's the vessels prepared for wrath. But with some, God exhibits extreme patience to the degree that they transform become, before becoming vessels of wrath. They actually are transformed into becoming vessels of mercy. And vessels of mercy are being prepared for vessels of glory. Praise the Lord, Paul's point is this. The objects of wrath are not summarily dismissed. Rather, God exercises great patience towards them. Although God can at any time choose to show wrath against sin, he says, time out. We're going to postpone that action. For a period of time, I'm going to show great patience on planet Earth. I'm going to exhibit my patience. And instead, during that period of time, he invites those who were the objects of his wrath to become objects of his mercy. 
so that we might become objects of his glory. God's patience, hear this, God's patience is intended for this reason, and he is a patient God, I hope you agree with that. God is so patient, and his patience is for one reason and one reason alone. He intends to lead sinners to repentance. Look with me on the screen, Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It is his intention that through those who have been set apart, and I know I'm talking to many this morning, but this is true, you've been set apart by God's mercy. It his intention is that you would reflect his glory. As verse 22 says, that you would make known the riches of his glory. So track this. Here comes the Christmas story. Objects of wrath who became objects of his mercy are expected to become objects of his glory. You might be thinking right now, I want that. That sounds really good. That sounds like purpose in life. I want to be an object of his glory. Well, remember the original premise. Does God only save for salvation? Or is there something more? Is there something more for the reason you're going through a monumental challenge right now? Let's translate all of these principles over to Mary and Joseph. We'll come back at it really hard next week and spend more time with their story. But just briefly, touch on the Christmas story with me. Luke one twenty six. Now in the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was set from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to be a man, to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. So life is pretty good. She's got wedding plans underway. She's engaged to the guy of her dreams. If it was 2019, she'd be posting photos to Facebook. Look at my engagement ring. She's normal. She's a normal girl who's engaged to a guy, but she's been chosen by God. So she's engaged. She's planning on her wedding. She's putting things in order for her future household. She's going to be the future Mrs. Joseph. Invitations have gone out. And things are good because her husband's got a job. He's secure. He's respected in the community. How do I know that? Because that's a huge deal in the first century. You didn't get work if you weren't respectable in the community. There's no government system waiting to bail anybody out. They had to have a great reputation. Reputation is everything in the first century of the Middle East. So things are pretty normal. She's got wedding plans underway. And she's excited and something not normal is invading her world Something beyond her ability to grasp in the moment of, this is a monumental challenge. Go with me to verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Remember the premise, how will I make room in my life for God? We get insight into the framework of Mary's thinking by that statement in that verse. In this moment... She's filled with confusion, and she's filled with fear. How do I know that? The word that's used here is the next Greek word that's in your notes. It's diatrosso, and she's greatly disturbed. 
at a level that you might associate with having maybe been the first person to arrive on the scene for an accident. Maybe the shock factor has taken over. Or you've been in a place where a loved one has passed away. And the trembling that begins to take place associated with that. You understand what's going on here. She is wholly agitated. And I don't mean in a bad way. She's disturbed in her spirit. And the angel knows that. So he says to her in verse 30, the angel said to her, Mary, do do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. See, she had to be afraid for him to say that. That's natural. It's what she's facing that she doesn't understand The word afraid, actually translated in the Greek language, in in the language of the first century, it it means to be terrified. She's terrified because she doesn't know what's ahead of her and because of what she's encountered with this angel. But remember, because she has been chosen, you found favor with God, Mary. Because she's been chosen, she's been called. So she's an object of his mercy. Mary's just like you. She's been chosen by God. She's an object of God's mercy in order to be an object of his glory. She's going to take on a responsibility in order to fulfill God's plan. And the angel is about to drop the bombshell. She's going to be asked to do something that no one has ever been asked to do before. This is monumental. Go forward with me. It says in verse 31, and behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Church, I wonder if the angel had just left it at that, what would she do with that information? What if she didn't know that he was going to be the savior of the world? That he was going to be great? That he would inherit the throne of the father, David? What if it was just that you're going to be pregnant, Mary, and you're going to carry a son, And we're going to leave it at that. And you should name him Jesus. It is much easier for you and I to endure difficult circumstances when we know the reason behind it. But many times we find ourselves left without understanding, why am I going through this? What's the purpose in this? Well, God's already shown you and I, we have the benefit of looking back on Scripture. Mary didn't have that benefit. We can look back on it and say, God causes all things to work together for good. Ultimately, what I'm going through is to bring God glory. That's the reason we go through what we go through. But Mary didn't have that information, so we get verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Logically, monumental challenges produce monumental questions. Mary's no exception. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I am a virgin. It's a modern-day version of saying, wait, what? What? What are you talking about? Can you imagine the heart palpitations in this moment, church? Your life is laid out before you and you think everything's good and it's going along swimmingly. But God interrupts and he brings what we would term a disruption into your life. And the wait what is a fair question. It's not an illegitimate question. She's not challenging like, what right does he have to do this? I see no evidence of that. This is a request for clarification. 
I see no indication of challenging God. Rather, she's recognizing. She's being asked to take on something, a responsibility, which going beyond her ability to grasp in the moment. So Gabriel explains to her, she doesn't have to do anything. This is of God, Mary. You don't have to do anything yet. The formation of the events that are about to unfold, that's all of God. It's God activity. Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Therefore, the child will be called the Son of God. And to confirm it, because the questioning is so great in her heart, why am I going through this? The question is so huge, it can't happen, I'm a virgin. God has to confirm it to her, and so he says, well, by the way, your elderly uh, relative, Elizabeth, she's six months pregnant. The one who said they couldn't have babies is having a baby, Mary, that will confirm it for you. See, God's doing it, Mary. God does this. God is the one who brings the monumental challenge. God is the one who brings it. We respond to the call. God puts his work through us. When I was at Trinity Church in the 90s, a pastor who led Trinity was Emerson Egrich. Some of you know Emerson. Uh, Dr. Egrich went on to write books, multiple books, and Emerson was known by the people at Trinity for a phrase that is very common even today when you hear it. You go, oh, that's right, I haven't heard that in a while. Emerson used to say it this way, my response is my responsibility. My response is my responsibility. My response to God, to God's call, is my responsibility. The angel just has to state the fact. And the fact is, there's nothing impossible with God, Mary. God has the capacity to bring to you anything he chooses because he chose you. And he wants to put his glory on display through you. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, the angel just goes right to the base plate and says, there's nothing impossible with God, Mary. Even when from a human standpoint, God's purposes place us in a really difficult situation. It's in those moments we recognize God is asking us to make room. Make room to allow him to put himself on display through our life so that we would be an object of his glory. What's going to emerge from the situation that you're facing right now? I have no idea. It's between you and God. God can bring glory out of it. Or you can fight back against God. But God brings us to these circumstances. And it's true, God knew he could trust Mary. He knew that he could trust her to carry a child when very few people would ever understand we're going to really go into that next week with Mary and Joseph's story. Very few people would understand what they were going through. But know this, if God has brought a challenge to your life, know it this way. God allows difficult circumstances to come so that we will make room for the glory of God to be put on display so that his name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, logically, we could sit here on a Sunday morning and think, wait, 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 I've got a huge challenge going on right now. What if I stumble? 
Well, first of all, God knows that you will. You will stumble. But he's the one who can cause you not to stumble because God has known you and God has chosen you and loved you from before the foundation of the earth. So God comes back at you and says, if you're fearing that you can stumble, I can be the one who's able to make you stand because you can't do it in your own strength. So I'm gonna ask you right now to end this with me in a unique way. I'm gonna ask you to stand right where you're at in your seat, stand up, and I'm gonna pronounce a blessing over you that comes from the book of Jude, and it speaks specifically to this issue. Would you close your eyes with me and just hear this blessing of God over you? Now to him who is able to make you stand and to keep you from stumbling in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and dominion and authority from before all time and now and forever. God, we can ask for that blessing upon us because you claimed it in your written word that you are able to make us stand. So we do stand before you right now, but with fear that we might stumble in the midst of the challenge you bring our way. So we turn our attention towards you. We ask through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would be at work in our life today, tomorrow, Wednesday, a week from now. God, that you would put yourself on display even in these fragile shells that we now inhabit, that you would receive the praise and the glory and the honor and that our perspective would be adapted and conformed to your will, that you want to use us as an object of your glory because you're worthy of it. You're the king of glory. All praise and honor belongs to you. We recognize these things through the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen.